Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm joined by biochemist Michael Behe, professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, and a senior fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. You may know him as author of Darwin's Black Box, named one of the 100 most important books of the 20th century by National Review and World Magazine. Behe has presented his work at major universities throughout North America and the United Kingdom. Michael, thanks for taking time out to speak with me today. Uh, It's a pleasure, Andrew. Nice to be with you. So you're coming out with a book this month, a new one, a brand new one. I'm so excited about it. It's published by Harper One. It's called Darwin Devolves, the new science about DNA that challenges evolution. You took a lot of committed materialists by surprise with your groundbreaking book, Darwin's Black Box. When your follow-up, The Edge of Evolution, came out, it seemed like they tried to get ahead of that one and undermine that book's success. Uh, It sounds like they're using a bit of the same technique this time around with a preemptive pre-publication review of Darwin Devolves in Science, one of the world's top science journals. The review, titled A Biochemist's Crusade to Overturn Evolution, Misrepresents Theory and Ignores Evidence, certainly isn't complimentary, but you write in a recent blog post that you're ecstatic about this review, calling it embarrassingly, cringe-inducingly weak. So, tell us why you're so happy with this review of your book in the journal Science. Uh, Well, as you know, uh, Darwin's theory is accepted by a large majority of scientists. So, when you go against something that's accepted by uh, a lot of folks, you always worry that you might be missing something that that, uh, other people know, and you just didn't see a paper somewhere, or you just didn't hear about a concept. And so... When the review first came out, first of all, I was very surprised because reviews usually aren't published until the day or after the book is actually available for purchase. Mm-hmm. But when I saw when I saw the the um, review, I was wondering, you know, what are they going to say about my claim that uh, Darwinian evolution works mostly by breaking or degrading genes and startlingly they had nothing at all to say about that rather they talked about you know extraneous stuff which i guess we can talk about uh, later but they didn't say a word about the degradatory processes that i wrote about in the whole book and and which explain almost you know virtually all of the results that people have gotten lately well i understand they had a thousand words we'll get into some of the details here so for our listeners that haven't yet heard about the book can you give us a brief rundown of what you cover in darwin devolves Sure, uh, I'll get into that in a second. But uh, the interesting thing to know is that Darwin's theory was proposed back in the 19th century, in in the middle of the 1800s, when the cell was unknown, uh, molecules were still theoretical concepts, DNA was uh, was not known then either. So people didn't know what the changes were, what the variations were in organisms. Uh, what they were caused by that Darwin needed for his theory. They could see that some v- variations would do better 
in some environments than others, but they didn't know why. I mean, they didn't know what was causing the variation. It was only with the discovery of the molecular level of life with DNA and the proteins that DNA codes for. Proteins are actually the machinery that runs the cell. And it's actually the changes in DNA are the mutations that drive evolution. So you have to look at the molecular level of life to actually evaluate Darwin's theory. And we've known about DNA since the 1950s, but it's only been in the past 10 or 20 years that scientists have been able to pinpoint the changes in DNA that cause beneficial mutations. And the principal point of the book is that the large majority of the beneficial mutations, the ones that help organisms survive, we find that they break genes, they degrade genes, they throw away genetic information that was already there, and sometimes that can help. So these things actually spread in the population and will take over the population. But it's not changing by evolution. I, I like to call it, it's changing by devolution because it's throwing away stuff that it already had. And of course, that does not explain uh, where the complex genetic information came from in the first place. Well, that's an interesting point. The review's authors, uh, Richard Lensky, Joshua Swamidas, and Nathan Lentz, say your book fails to challenge modern evolutionary science. Yet, as you're pointing out, they offered no response to the central argument of your book. So, what what gives? Why didn't they? They had they had a thousand words, or less than. Surely they could have come up with something big to throw at you. Why not? Uh, well, I they I think they were dumbstruck. <laughs> I, I hate to uh, you know say that it's it's not you know anything snazzy about my insight. It's just that. Darwinists are, are uh, famously slow to recognize problems for their own theory. Mm-hmm. And here, this book directly challenges the very mechanism that supposedly powers evolution, Darwin's idea of random mutation and natural selection, because it says, yeah, it does exist, and yeah, it can change things and sometimes help but actually, you're going downhill. You're losing genetic information through this process. And I go into detail in the book to say why that's it should be expected, at least in retrospect, because uh, it's so much easier to break stuff than to make stuff. And in my view, they there is no answer to that. It's it's just uh, uh, and and I th- <laughs> it might sound you know suspicious coming from me, but I think the uh, review authors uh, are just trying to to buy some time. So maybe this review's tempered, but it it sure seems like they've got nothing much to say about it. I did read uh, over at Peaceful Science where Josh Swamidas uh, writes that they left out important points in the interest of space. So who knows? Maybe they'll have something <laughs> in the wings that they'll yeah. throw at you later. But they had a chance here. Um, yeah. That- they're going to uh, save their big points for when they aren't writing in Science Magazine, I guess. So. <laughs> there you go. And and that I also wanted to ask you about that. Why three authors? Is is that is that strange to to have three authors review one book? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I, I've never seen a, a, re, a book review with 
you know, they're rarely, I guess, two authors, but never I've, have I seen three. Yeah. I don't know. It, it seems to me there's something weird going on, but neither Josh Swamidas nor the Nathan Lentz are very well-known uh, scientists, and neither of them are really recognized evolutionary biologists. The only one who is is Richard Lensky. So it may be that it was their idea, it was the uh, other two guys' idea, and Lensky kind of got drawn in it to give the review a, a little more impact. So maybe maybe that, but that's just speculation, of course. Yeah. Well, as is your custom, you have provided a lengthy response to this uh, first, quote-unquote, formidable review of your book, even before it comes out. <laughs> I do appreciate your thoroughness. It's a, it's a great post. You've shared it at Evolution News and Science Today. And in that, you group the points the authors make into three themes. Supposed counterexamples that they cite, stale old arguments that they bring up, and then Lansky's own evolution work and what you do or don't say about it. And you also draw some important conclusions based on their review, too. So with the rest of our time today, we'll look at some of those supposed counterexamples that they cite in an attempt to refute your arguments. And in another episode, we'll look at the stale arguments that they have brought up again and why they were inadequate then and why they're inadequate now. And you'll also kind of tell us what can we conclude from this uh, Science Magazine review. The first counterexample had to do with exaptation. The reviewers say this process by which nature retools structures for new function is missing from your discussion. What do you say to that? Well, uh, first let me mention that exaptation is a label for a conjectured process where uh, a functioning organ uh, or a functioning gene is readjusted to another role. And an example at the organ level of biology, at least a supposed example, is the the swim bladder in fish, which is kind of similar to lungs in air-breathing creatures. The idea is that uh, lungs or the swim bladder were retooled or readjusted so that they could absorb gas and fulfill a, a different role, either uh, helping to breathe or helping to keep a fish at a certain depth uh, steadily at, in the ocean. And they do bring this up, but Surprisingly, they don't even try to explain how Darwinian processes could begin even with a fully functioning organ, like, say, lungs, and, and adjust it to work in some other role, like a swim bladder. Hmm. They simply assume that natural selection could do that. And uh, this has been, this particular example has been a staple of Darwinian. Uh, talking points for a long time, but it's it's clearly just begging the question. They say, well, here's this over here, these lungs, here's this swim bladder over here, and we can see that, well, they have similarities in common. They have some, uh, they absorb gas and they uh, do stuff with it, and uh, so I guess one, you know, came from the other, but it's completely a, a story and when somebody like myself says, well, I don't think, or at least I, I have no reason to suppose that that could happen by random, undirected processes, 
it doesn't answer the question just to point at the one and the other and say, ha, you know, look at this. This is something that happened by Darwinian processes. That's, like I said, begging the question. Sure. Sounds very similar to Charles Marshall's review of Darwin's Doubt by Stephen Meyer in Science when he said that there was a reworking of the gene regulatory networks at some point in order to, to make changes needed for novelty and, and further evolution. That, that's right. Uh, strange as it may seem to people who aren't in the field, uh, it seems many Darwinian biologists have trouble separating the question of what has happened in life and how it happened in life. They see astonishing organs or systems in biology, and they see complex rearrangements or complex differences from one to another uh, kind of organism. And they say, wow, look what Darwinian processes can do. And they never stop to think, well, <laughs> well maybe it wasn't Darwinian processes that did that. So they, yeah, they, uh, they assume the conclusion. They don't demonstrate it. Sure. Well, the next counterexample that Lensky, Swamidas, and Lentz bring up in their review is gene duplication. Can you explain what they claim and how you respond? Sure. Um, gene duplication is, again, starting with a working gene, just like in the organismal example, they started with a working organ, and assume it duplicates by ordinary processes that go on in the cell. When the DNA of the cell is being replicated, sometimes a mistake is made and a region is copied twice. And so that's gene duplication. And so they go on to say, well, now we have a new gene and, and it'll go on to assume a new role. And they look at a couple of different classes of genes, ones that are involved in vision, the rhodopsins, the light receptors, and ones that are involved in, in smelling, odor receptors, and other ones that are involved in developmental processes called Hox proteins. And they say, well, look at these. These are all similar, and they have somewhat different roles, and, and they really have uh, been beneficial to life. But once again, <laughs> they haven't even tried to show that these were produced by Darwinian processes. Now, it's the, the problem is not gene duplication. Gene duplication can be seen to happen in experiments. That's fine. But the question is, how does this get folded in to the biology of the organism? Just consider uh, sight. Suppose that a, uh, some animal... Uh, was born with an extra rhodopsin, an extra protein that detected uh, wavelength of light. Well, initially, that wouldn't help because it was just the same as the previous one. That's what meant by duplication. And if it started to change, well, you know, why would that be beneficial? Why wouldn't the animal respond as if it had... Uh, confusing information being sent to it, you know, kind of like a birth defect rather than an improvement. Right. Uh, nobody try, nobody tries to even justify the, the help that would come from that. And hmm. then there are, uh, there are a lot of other problems too, but I'm not sure if you want me to go into more depth or not. Well, that's plenty for now. Uh, I can sense a <laughs> pattern here. You know, there's a lot of leaps and bounds and <laughs> assumptions being made and, Gosh, Darwinian evolution gets so much credit. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, and people, it gets so much credit that people don't realize it's more of a sociological phenomenon than it is an actual laboratory and scientific one. Uh, it's kind of like whatever we discover in biology, whatever amazing things, uh, since Darwin's theory is the default view, people automatically credit it with what has happened in biology or what can be found there. But like the reviewers and, and many other Darwinian biologists, nobody has justified or nobody even tries to justify uh, almost any of these things, certainly nothing complex. Uh, so all of the credit, all of the, all of the publicity and so on that's given to Darwin's theory is not based on results directly testing Darwin's theory, but it's just automatically chalked up to Darwin's theory because, well, because that's that's the only one we're allowed to <laughs> allowed to uh, think about. Sure. Instead of the the grand old party, it's the grand old theory, the GOT. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, a third counterexample the reviewers bring up is related to guided laboratory evolution. What are they trying to claim with this, and what are they missing? Well, uh, people have been doing experimental evolution these past 40 or so years, and um, you know, a number of laboratory experiments have done. They're, they're always uh, great, but you always have to be careful about what's going on in the lab because it's not nature, and if the investigator kind of uh, arranges things too particularly, then you wonder if it's really mimicking natural conditions. And they pointed to a, an experiment by a certain lab where they took a particular gene and through various laboratory procedures saw that it developed an ability to synthesize a different biological substance instead of the one it originally did. It was going to synthesize something called tryptophan and, instead of histidine. But the problem is they started with a gene that they already knew that the organism didn't need, and they added material that uh, the once they uh, initiated the experiment, the uh, bacterium would no longer be able to make, and it was critical for it. So it would have died at that point without the investigators helping it. And then they knew that the uh, gene would be shut off by the extra stuff that they added. So they removed a control element, which would have shut the gene down, even in the presence of this extra helpful, necessary organic substance. So, <laughs> so they guided the evolution of this particular gene. And the reviewers and many other folks, uh, Darwinian folks, don't seem to get it that when you start to guide the results, you have left Darwinian processes way behind. Now you're into the realm of intelligent design. The uh, those investigators are selecting what they want and they're intelligently guiding the development of that gene as much as breeders of pigeons or breeders of dogs are trying to guide the development uh, of those animals. Sure. Uh, so 
yeah, this seems to be hard for uh, many Darwinian biologists to appreciate. Wow. Well, there's lots more to say about all this, and in another episode we'll continue to break down this review of your new book, Darwin Devolves, in the prestigious journal Science, and your detailed responses to it. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Andrew. Well, you can learn more about Michael Behe's new book at darwindevolves.com. That's darwindevolves.com. You can listen to more episodes of ID the Future at idthefuture.com or via your favorite podcasting app. For ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.